Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello and welcome to this all new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I'm your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And on today's show, we are thrilled to be joined by a special guest, Dr. Caitlin Scarano, who has a PhD in English from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and an MFA in poetry from the University of Alaska Fairbanks. We are here today because she has a new collection just out from Blair Publishing called The Necessity of Wildfire, which was the winner of the Wren Poetry Prize and was selected by none other than final judge Ada Limone. Uh, Caitlin has lived uh, in many different places, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the episode, um, but primarily between Virginia and Washington State. Uh, And in addition to that, has taken part in, uh, aside from literary endeavors, many different uh, environmental and uh, nature-related projects, including the National Science Foundation's Antarctic Artists and Writers Program. So she spent part of 2018 in Antarctica, which I'm very curious about, um, and is also a member of Washington's Wolf Advisory Group. Uh, And in terms of blending art in the environment, has worked with visual artist Megan Para on a poetry and visual art project about the porcupine caribou herd. Um, Caitlin, Welcome to Close Talking. Thank you for having me. We are, of course, glad to have you with us. And quickly, before we get into the poem, I wanted to do something that will hopefully help our listeners get to know you a little bit better and help the three of us get to know each other. Um, Because you are so widely traveled and have been to so many different places, uh, and your website, in fact, describes you as both a writer and wanderer, uh, (laughs) what is a place uh, other than maybe the ones where you've sort of lived for the most significant periods of time that has been especially meaningful to you? I think that my first response, if I'm choosing a place that is not where I've lived, I would say Montana. I am sort of in love with Montana. I would like to live there. Um, I, when I moved from Fairbanks, Alaska to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, my partner at the time and I, we did the move via a drive. Like we took two weeks to drive from Fairbanks to Milwaukee. And when we entered the United States, we, it was 
nighttime and we were exhausted. This was in the summer, I think it was August. And we entered into the United States in like the middle of nowhere in Montana. And I had never been there before and it was dark. So we couldn't really see anything. Um, we went to like a very random primitive campsite and the next morning we woke up and I was just like, where are we? <laughs> and we, we started driving and we were driving along, um, Flathead Lake. I don't know if you've ever been there. This is, um, not far from, I think, Glacier National Park. Um, but anyway, we were driving along Flathead Lake and I was just like captivated by this area, sort of like the Whitefish, Montana area. And it, it felt sort of like I had been lied to. I grew up in Virginia, which is also a very beautiful countryside, but I, I didn't know that places like Montana exist. Although I think, um, not to get too political, but I feel like more and more in our current context, it's, I think it's more and more dangerous to be living in red states um, for certain populations of people. Uh, so that would be like a consideration if I were to move there. I'm very grateful to be living in Washington state because for the most part, um, the state sort of reflects my values and those are pro progressive values and they seem to um, be doing a good job of protecting protecting the rights of their people. Fantastic. My main memory of the first time I went to Montana is it was also on like a road trip mm -hmm. and the, because of the wind, uh, we would, we very quickly learned you open like one side of the car doors <laughs> at a time. You never, you never both yeah. get out at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> it was like oh, a major wow. Montana learning, um, where just like the maps and all the paper in the front of the car mm -hmm. just completely went up. Um, but it is an incredibly beautiful state for sure. I think that what I like about it is how dramatic the landscape is, like how open it is and the variation and the mountains. I'm very drawn to mountains. And um, I also, since living in Alaska, I discovered that I, I just um, do well or like something about deep winter, like deep winter that's like cold and dark and still with a lot of snow, like is very appropriate for a poetic soul. <laughs> Nice. Yes, I, I am uh, in Minnesota right now. So um, currently in a deep winter and it's yes, I can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> so what about you, Connor? What is a, a place other than the ones you've lived that has been uh, particularly meaningful? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, I guess going with uh, thinking about, well, my my dad as a kid, uh, lived in Sitka, Alaska for like seven years. And when we were in middle school, we visited Sitka, um, which was an amazing trip. And the only time I've ever gutted a fish, which was, um, still, I see the guts in my, <laughs> in my memory, but, um, no, it was a, it was a marvelous trip and just very beautiful. And, um, yeah, we saw a bear and we saw, um, one of his old friends who was living on a houseboat for the whole year and just kind of used the Alaskan tax thing from gas and then, uh, some solar panels, um, 
but he had a huge dog in a very small uh, houseboat, which I did find a little concerning. Um, but <laughs> thankfully, I didn't have to endure it. It was a good tour. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I want to go back. Thinking about the dog, I live in a tiny house with two dogs currently. And um, I think if um, you have enough love, you can make it make it work. <laughs> Yes. No, I, I think you're right. I, I grew up. Um, I now we have a, my partner and I have a, an 18 pound little guy, a uh, little dog. Um, and I've, I've become a full dog convert since then, but I grew up afraid of dogs. So I think at the time it was more troubling, uh, than I think it would be, be now. I think it would be pretty fun. My mom was horrified. Jack you got any, any, uh, special spots. Oof. Um, um, a couple years ago, I visited Ireland for the first time and particularly, uh, did, I did a lot of walking in general on that trip to Ireland and just a couple of other places, but particularly I remember walking around the city of Cork and it was like sunny and maybe 50 degrees. And you, it's the kind of days where like, you don't want to do anything other than be outside walking around. And so it was just incredible to be in that place doing that on days that felt like it was sort of meant to be doing that. Should we get into the poem in the book? Yeah, today we're going to be uh, hearing and talking about the poem Buttercream from the new collection, uh, The Necessity of Wildfire. So with that, I think I'm going to turn it over to uh, you, Caitlin, to maybe introduce the poem and read it to us. Yeah, this poem, I want to give credit to The Hunger Journal, which is an online journal. They were the first to publish it. And they nominated it uh, for the best of the net award, which it was selected for. So I, I just wanna give a big thank you to the editors there. Um, this poem is called Buttercream. I open an avocado only to find it dappled with rot. I eat it anyway. Because my blood burns, I decide not to have children. My father's father was full of copper. His son, a liver textured with scarring. I ate it anyway. I asked for guidance, not a leash and a collar. I turned my belly inside out. It's dappled with eggs the color of buttercream. My hens don't know which are fertilized and which aren't. My mother lost her wedding ring in vegetable garden dirt. I dig out the rot. I say, I decided not to have children, children, but no man ever asked me and meant it. If each parent gives you a defective gene, you can bake a cake or crawl across the floor between buckets of your blood. I dig, but never find the ring. Some hens sit on eggs until they rot. Some men take hammers to their wives. My lover yawns. Of all the stories I could tell, I've learned of all the stories you could tell. Her blood burned. My mother made a red velvet cake with buttercream frosting. She ate the whole thing. She never told anyone who believed her. He might have been sick his whole broken bowl of a life. I might find a golden ring around my iris. I might, might not be a creature first in dirt. Anger, like memory, takes, takes away as much as it provides. Some hens leave their eggs where they land. Either way, we follow, we gather, we eat them. Thank you. Thank you. Um, maybe before we get too deep into the nitty gritty of a conversation about the poem, uh, you can put it in sort of the context of the collection a little bit. 
um, and maybe talk also a little bit about the collection itself. Yeah. So the a number of poems in the necessity of wildfire come from my graduate dissertation from when I was a student at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Um, I think the last maybe year or year and a half I was in that program, I actually was living in Washington. So I feel like there's um, a lot of poems from my childhood in Virginia in this manuscript and a lot of poems that are influenced or about my time in Washington mainly. And the summer that I moved to Washington, which was in July, 2017, there were a lot of wildfires in the area. I originally lived in a remote town on the Western side of the North Cascade mountains. And so there was all the smoke and the smell of fire. And I had never lived like where there was wildfire, like even in Alaska and Fairbanks, it wasn't so much as present as it was where I was located in Washington. So something about the presence of wildfire and how also like how wet Washington is or the Western side of Washington, there's so much water and the Northern Cascades are called that because of all the snow melt, how it forms all these cascades, these waterfalls when it starts to come down. Um, so it was like really fascinated by this lush, intense landscape and the contrast between wildfire and water and sort of similarly interested in the contrast of my present life in this place on the West Coast um, and my childhood in this place in the rural South on the East Coast. So I think the, the book has, there's a number of things that seem like contradictions or opposites that sort of like braid and weave. Um, the main subject of the collection is multi-generational trauma. And I think probably secondary to that is just like the complexity of relationships. And these are not new themes to my work. I feel like I circle similar questions and topics or that I've circled these questions and topics since I started writing, which was when I was a child, honestly. And I'm really fascinated in this collection by like thinking about the like, where we come from, what we inherit, and how much of what has happened to us and what we've been through shapes who and how we love. So I'm not sure that I land on or even want to land on any clear or specific answers or revelations, but it's really just like the work of sitting with those questions through the lens of poetry that compels me here. That's so interesting. And it does really come through in the collection. And I'm curious how you see some of that playing out in this poem in particular. How, how are you sort of playing with opposites or how are you doing some of that braiding of those different themes in Buttercream? So in this poem in particular, I was interested in, the, in different types of sickness, whether that's hereditary illness or challenges related to mental health or addiction. Um, I identify as an addict. I am, um, have been sober from alcohol since the fall of 2016. Um, so interested in sickness and also the social factors that shape and contribute to various sicknesses. And I think 
so I'm talking about sickness broadly here. So um, maybe it, it might be a little hard to pin down, but when I'm looking at this, I'm examining the tension between what's inherited versus what's caused by environmental factors versus what is what is based on our personal decisions or consequences of our personal decisions. So I think there's some contradictions there. And I used to live in a cabin in this small town in the North Cascades. And that was, it was with a previous partner and we kept hens for several years. And so there were uh, eggs everywhere. They just like leave, leave eggs in various places, you know? Um, and I became very captivated with the egg as an image. And I think that that was like the inciting image of the poem, but also when I was working on the poems for this collection, so that's sort of like between like 2017 and maybe like 2019, 2020, um, I was, coming to a final decision on whether I wanted to have children or not. So this sort of relates to the egg imagery. Um, I think you can see this struggle, this internal struggle that I had playing out across multiple poems in the collection. And I think the hen and the eggs get at the idea of fertility and infertility and productivity or a lack of productivity. Um, and then I also have been thinking about so like if you choose not to be a parent and what, what does that mean to end a line, like end a hereditary line? Um, my younger sister has a daughter. So in that way, our father and our mother's genes or whatever uh, will continue on. But from my perspective, I'm like choosing to end the family line, at least in like from me. And so there's like a lot of weight there if you think about that symbolically. And especially because I've like engaged with these like issues related to cycles of abuse and trauma and addiction. And so there's some sort of like power there in saying like, I, I stop, I stop this cycle. I step out of this cycle. I choose to like move towards something else in my life um, that isn't rooted in reproduction. Um, and I just want to clarify here that even if it's obvious, like I'm not against people having children, I think it's a very personal choice. It's just like my choices may be different than the norm. Um, and I think it's something that women or women identified people feel a lot of pressure around, especially at a certain time in their life. And yeah, I guess I'll stop there. See if you have questions about those things. I mean, certainly the the question of family, which I think is approached from a lot of different angles in this collection, as you were sort of alluding to, all the senses of reproduction, right? It's not just having a child. It's what does having a child reproduce? Does it reproduce all of the history of the family as well? Um, and I'm curious if you can maybe talk a little bit about you know how you were sort of sitting with this idea of family at the time of writing some of these poems and how that how you were thinking about threading that through. Yeah, I, I have so many ideas about the concept of family because I, I come from a certain family with its like a specific history. Mm -hmm. And I also 
have built a new family, like a chosen family, right? And I don't choose one or the other. I'm privileged enough to have both. But family in a way is strange because we're born into um, a group of people that we don't choose, right? Um, and so we, we may not actually, besides the shared history, right? We may not actually have a lot in common with those people. So it's actually like a, a pretty challenging experience or experiment for some people to try to like forge these tight, tight connections and forge a life with people who may not reflect your values. Um, I would say like, that's not necessarily the situation that I'm in. I grew up with, um, I grew up with a mom. She's a single mother. Her name is Sue. And I have two sisters, one older, one younger. And I would say that I am very close with my mother and have a lot of connection to my mother and my sisters. And I'm really grateful that I had a life and childhood with them. And I think that like growing up in a family of women in that close household really shaped who I am today. But my life has definitely diverged like from them. You know, it's like, it's hard for me often to be so far away. Um, but also I felt compelled to go on this path that wasn't similar to what I was doing or like what they were doing or where I grew up. So yeah, I think family is complicated. Is that uh, a satisfactory answer? <laughs> I think it's the only answer <laughs> um, on, on many levels. And I, I want to sort of come back to the topic of multi-generational trauma. Um, this is a, a center for the collection. There's the line in buttercream that says, of all the stories I could tell, I've learned of all the stories you could tell. So that's, that's like a, a pivotal line, I think, here, because these, these poems in the necessity of wildfire, I, I think they're intense. I think they're sad. They, they deal with trauma, they deal with abuse. Um, and I have mixed emotions. I've always had mixed emotions writing about what has happened to me and what has happened to my family. And well, first, because it, in a way it reenacts that violence or those different forms of violence by writing about them. It brings them back to the surface, right? Um, and it makes us vulnerable. And it's not just me. It's like, I often have to sit with like, how am I responsible to those around me? Those that I love, those that I bring up in the poems. And I wanna, you know, make a little clarification here that the, um, in, in none of the poems, uh, this, the speaker is not the poet in any of the poems. Although those two lie very close to each other typically in my work. Um, but it's not strictly autobiographical. Um, so anyway, there's this vulnerability in writing about what's happened to you or writing about around what's happened to you and your family. But I, I find it to be, honestly, I feel like it's what I was called to do or one of the things I was called to do, which is like speak, speak about what has been silenced, especially things that happen to women in the domestic space. This is like a mission of my life. I, I feel it in my core. And so, yeah, there's a lot of um, ethical questions around writing about the self, writing about trauma, writing about your family. Um, but I feel like there's a greater purpose here 
in breaking the silence around some of these things because, and this is what the line gets at, they're so common, right? Like I, the more I write about this stuff and the more I share that writing, uh, the more I've learned how many people have similar stories, um, oftentimes that haven't been told or haven't been processed. Um, so I, I don't feel like I am unique or special or my family is unique or special. It's just the context from which I understand these things. It's the only place really that I can speak to. I'm fascinated from like a, a processing craft perspective, talking about that line, because I feel like there are lines like that in a few of the poems in the collection. And I'm curious how you come about putting that together and also deciding kind of where to deploy it in a poem or in a, in a collection. So where to deploy a line like that, that's sort of speaking about like in a meta way about the work. Yeah. And a line that feels like it's kind of crystallizing so much in it so that as you're going through the collection, like I, as a reader, that's one of the lines that I highlighted for myself. And there were a couple of other moments where I felt like those were the lines that were kind of jumping out at me and really had so much packed into them. And oftentimes similar to that line, they also felt like they were some of the simplest language and some of the most straightforward. Um, but even in being that, they were also kind of containing, in many cases, many, if not more contradictions than were in some of the other places in poems. So I'm sort of curious how, when you're putting poems together, is that something you're consciously thinking about? Like, I, I want to make sure there's a line in here somewhere that kind of brings us together, or is it more organic? Or And then as you're putting your collection together, how are you thinking about, you know, poems that have those lines and how they might be talking to each other or coming together in a group? Yeah, I, I wish I had something more like specific to say, like about it being planned or strategic, but uh, that line, and I think lines like that, they occur organically. And certainly everything that I write isn't, doesn't ever see the light of day and isn't um, like, like publishable. But in this poem in particular, it, it all, I, as I remembered, it all flowed from itself. Like um, I, I wasn't necessarily planning out any of the lines in the poem or where I wanted to land or what I wanted to wanted it to be about. I think I was like starting with that idea of the egg and thinking about rot and thinking about sickness. And it all just sort of like each line sort of indicated or formed the next line. And I think with that line in particular, yeah, if I look at it, so I have some hens sit on eggs until they rot. Some men take hammers to their wives. So that's something that I've written about and the image of the hammer reoccurs. So that's from a story that I heard about my father's parents who I never met, my paternal grandfather. In this story that I've heard, he attacked his wife with a hammer and she survived, although I don't know any of the details and I can't even confirm the story, although it's very likely true um, because I didn't, I didn't know them. And my father was pretty absent from my life. Like he was present in my life till I was about six or seven. And then really the next time I saw him was when he was dying. So there's all these gaps, right? All these gaps in the stories. And, um, and that's part of why I think poetry is a um, is a useful way to like write about this stuff. Cause they're, you know, poetry like distills and there's gaps and it plays well with gaps and the un unknowns and the, um, instability of memory. But anyway, so I have that line, some men takes ha take hammers to their wives. 
like I keep returning to this because it's such a like um, intense thing, you know, and I, I think a lot about her and what happened, honestly. And but I also feel self-conscious because I've written about it so much. Like I have a chapbook that's called The Hatchet and the Hammer, right? So there's like sometimes when I come to these things that I've written about before when I'm like reworking them, there's something um, in me that responds in a self-conscious way. And then I think maybe that calls up these meta type lines because I'm like speaking to or speaking to myself about like, writing about a thing again, like there's this self-awareness of like, oh, here we are again. Um, so it's like the next line, my lover yawns. It's like, that's, there's supposed to be a contradiction there. It's like, oh, this dramatic thing. And also it's just like, there's like, we've heard it before. Right. And so then I, then it, that led naturally to sort of like, um, of all the stories I could tell, I've learned of all the stories you could tell specifically thinking of my partner at the time, um, some of what I learned and what he learned in the time we were together about his own history, his own family's history. And it's like, um, I, I thought that in the context of our relationship, I was the one sort of coming with, with this certain kind of trauma or things to process, but it's like, he has similar things that his family like has repressed or is working through. And so it, it's really important to, to remember that I think to like know the value in like sharing what's happened to you so that you can connect with others over it and move forward. I think um, one of the things that was important about that relationship with him is that we, when we talked about this stuff, like talked about what happened with our families we tried to frame it in like, okay, so how do we want to acknowledge that, but also like choose a different way of being in partnership and being in the world. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I have like 30 questions and places to go. Um, one thing that I was thinking about this poem specifically that I loved a lot that you were just touching on um, with the idea of rot and the idea of um eggs um and also the idea of like recurring things is that this this poem has just like um like a marvelous repetition of certain um part of it's the braiding i think that that you were talking about where we have you know the um you know, I eat it anyway happens in the beginning with the avocado. And then, um, you know, just a few lines later, his son, a liver textured with scarring, I ate it anyway. Um, and then, you know, the poem ends with, um, like, we eat them. Um, and similarly, we have that, like, I cut open an avocado only to find it dappled with rot, um, which is a great kind of description of the uh I was like I've had many of those avocados and they're still pretty good actually um anyway <laughs> um but then there's also you know just several lines later um you know I turn my belly inside out it's dappled with eggs the color of buttercream um so we have the kind of repetition of of dappled to describe both this avocado which also has kind of like an egg shape um, and 
Um, and then the DAPL is, is then, you know, describing the, the inside of the speaker's belly with the eggs. Um, and there's, there's a lot of connections that I'm making there, but um, one was, was that word dappled and then also that it's the color of buttercream, which obviously is the, the title of, poem, of the poem. And I was um, remembering another uh, poem earlier in the collection, um, which maybe it's not connected, but it sort of felt like it was. Um, the poem, Every Disaster Branches Out from Another, which is, I think, the second poem. Um, and that, that one is, is kind of about the speaker's grandfather. Um, and, you know, it ends with the grandfather saying, I give you this lifetime of fear, a throat full of bees. He, and then the speaker says that he had no idea the gift I would make of it. Um, and I was thinking about like, like rot, but also the buttercream as being like a very tasty, you know, and there's the part, other part of the poem where you can, it's, you can bake a cake or you can, you know, crawl across the floor with your own, with buckets of your own blood. Um, and the kind of like, it's like this repetition and also the kind of tension of, of, something rot and some something rotted and something very tasty and sweet and kind of um almost decadent in this case with the buttercream um yeah and i i guess i um i don't know i just i was i was i loved all of that a lot <laughs> um and i was wondering i don't know like how you were you talked so like wonderfully about all these larger themes um, in the collection. And I was curious, you know, how you're thinking about those as they manifest on the, the kind of the word level and the image level, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, and I appreciate you making connections between the poems. Um, I think in Buttercream specifically, I was interested in the idea of rot, maybe because like, cause I was thinking about the eggs, right. And how these discarded eggs, they, they can go, they can become rotten. Right. And so you like discover that if you crack it open. Um, so there's like this, like, like how reproduction or fertility or life like sits very closely to rot and death. Um, so I think about like what things rot whether that's literally or metaphorically, what does rot look like? Um, what do you do with rot or that which is rotten? Um, what is the purpose of rot? So this is actually where you, where you start to get more traction. Um, what does rot lead to? Um, rot actually is like, um, it's about things decomposing or breaking down or transforming. And it's about making space for the next thing, like rot feeds the next thing. So it's actually, it makes me think of death, but in not in a morbid way or in a dark way, it's like death is one of the, like death and gravity, right? Like these are certainties. <laughs> um, and um, like, so in this way, like death is actually like one of the most natural things. and 
I think of, I feel like Adrienne Marie Brown has talked about death in a way like death as natural. And I, I think about death as in like making space for the next thing. It's like, we get a certain amount of time and then it's like our time to like feed into like <laughs> feed into the earth or like, like help prepare for the next thing. Right. Um, which is comforting, I, I think. And as far as like the second poem, every disaster branches out from another, I think um, I'd, I'd like to sort of like give a nod to that poem and the presence of the grandfather here. So this is actually a poem about my mother's grandfather. So I have these two men who made the man and the woman who made me, right? So I, I often think about them because they, um, even though my father's father, I never knew they, they were sort of like, like dominated, like the conditions of my life, especially my younger life. And they've like, my grandfathers have loomed large, like in these poems, in my memory, in my story. Um, but I also have written about them so much that I become like self-conscious writing about them. And so I tried to get at the, that in another poem. Um, oh, it's yeah. The poem on page 15, it's in which I dream I am my grandfather. So in this poem, it, I, there's the, I is speaking to the, you, the, I is the grandfather speaking to the granddaughter, but it's basically me imagining and what, and so when I say grandfather in that poem in particular, I'm, I'm like blending them into one. There's memories from stories about both of them or experience that were experiences that relate to both of them so pulling them into this like grandfather figure which I'm inhabiting trying to imagine what he might say to I don't know if it's like to excuse what he did or explain what he did or just like um, speak from his position so it's like I write about these people or figures so often that I have to remind myself to like try to see it from a different position whether that's literally trying to like inhabit their mindset or someone else. And I also think about um, demons, like, um, or like how we have, we all are like the center of our own story and we're like in our own movie and the people around us are like supporting actors, right? And so we have like demons in our stories and antagonists in our stories. And they have certainly been traditionally been the antagonists, antagonists in my story, in my narrative. But the older I get, the more I realize like how um, simple that is and like narrow and arbitrary these distinctions are. Like, I don't even know if I like at this point, like place people in the categories of good or bad. Like, I, I don't know who's to say who's a good person or a bad person, you know, and I'm not even sure what that means. I think we all have the capability of doing things that um, like generate more love and care. And we all have the capability of doing things that generate more harm. And there's so many reasons in a situation why we might choose um, or like fall into something that causes more harm. And I've certainly tried to think about what they've, what they were like, what they've been through um, to sort of get at why they might've done some of the things that they did to the women in our family. And like, I know this story about um, my mother's father. I've heard that when he was younger, like a teenager, 
his father, who was, uh, I think an alcoholic would like get in fights at bars would like start fights. Right. And then he would make his son, like drag his son from like, from the house where he was sleeping and make him fight his fights for him. Cause he was like particularly strong. So there's just like all these things I can't know. And it's really important to me to sort of like grapple with what happened, what I know that happened, because some of it happened to me directly, um, but also like make space for all that I don't know. And like moral ambiguity, this is like a super important part of my work. And so I, I hope that readers see that and understand it. And in particular with um, that second poem that you pointed out, um, and you read that line where it's like the grandfather figure says, I give you this lifetime of fear, a throat full of bees, right? Like he certainly um, instilled fear in myself and my sisters. And, but I'm trying to acknowledge here that like, <laughs> I also like, I'm speaking very frankly here, like I've written about it so much. It's like become part of my identity, right? Like, it's like, I took these things that happen and I built a self, right? I built a, a body of work on these things. So there's like a self-consciousness there too, you know? Cause it's like, I'm not doing these things for like dramatic effect or notoriety, but they are, they are definitely complex, right? Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that. That's, yeah, that's really, um, well put and I I was that that other poem you brought up that in which I dream I am my grandfather there's also the um what the the grandfather says you know uh living is actually effortless if you let the land flood and rot flood and rot if you just let violence rise to the surface like cream um and then there's a, a lemon cake um and yeah, so which which is also I'm just thinking about cream again, but um, yeah, it it makes me think about I really am compelled by how you're talking about the kind of complex relationship with with family and um, and trauma and also the kind of the, you know, the sort of some things, you know, like um, genetic things happen, you know, you don't have any control over some like environmental factors, you know, happen to you, the things that um, family members do to you, especially when you are a kid, you don't have much control over. But then as you, um, you know, as one grows and grapples with things or doesn't, you can or can't sort of um, respond to those things in a different way. And then also you do, like one element that feels very related to all that is, you know, in addition to all the work that is very much about family, there's also um, so much work that deals with um, the quote unquote natural world and, and animals and um, plants and nature and landscapes. Um, and it, it makes me think I was very, I mean, this is like my own going off on my own, you know, personal <laughs> feelings, but like the, you know, American and Western kind of 
society often wants to separate the the human from the natural and um, the self from the outside. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it was very, like, especially there was a, there was another poem. Um, I think it's called my grandfather killed a deer, your grandfather killed a deer. Um, and in there, you know, that's kind of partly touching on the, um, you know, sharing one another's kind of family histories. Um, but then it's also doing so in, in the context of this like encounter with deer and, um, and I was, yeah, there's also, I was in talking about deer, there's another poem, I think that might be called like yet another poem about a deer or something, um, which I was like, the self-consciousness is definitely like uh, coming out in a great way. Um, but it, it, it makes me think, you know, like it's almost like an ecology that you're kind of like developing in this collection where, um, you know, like human humans and their families are like, um, interacting with one another and affecting one another, the environment, you know, in the form, whether it's the form of like copper and copper mining, which seems to have some kind of like, um, I don't know, environmental pollution or harm in that sense. Um, the wildfires, um, and, you know, all of the, the animals that they're, they're all sort of, you know, they're not like all conflated into one thing, but they're all together. Um, and it, it comes out in different ways where there's the, there's the other poem. Um, I think it's, they named you patriarch, which is about the wolf. Um, and separately, I'm very curious because I, uh, I do, um, <laughs> my day job is like making kids books for school libraries and it's like a lot of nonfiction. And so we, and I do a lot of the, um, kind of like science and those kinds of things. And so I've been, I was learning about how scientists track, uh, wolves with radio collars and things. And there's a, there's a, in that poem, you talk about the radio collars. And so it's, you know, it's, um, which I, which I appreciated as a detail in terms of like how, you know, uh, these aren't just like abstract symbols. It's like how the contemporary world is often interacting with species and things like that. Anyway, I guess I was, that's, that's a quite a bit of a ramble, but, um, yeah, I just, I don't think I've encountered a book that sort of weaves the the kind of human ecosystems and the quote-unquote natural ecosystems together in such a way that you do and I was just curious like how you think about the relationships between the the human and the non-human in in your work or any thoughts you have on any of that. Yeah, I think oh, <laughs> there's so much there. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, I, I 
believe that maybe in a different life, I would have been an ecologist or a wildlife biologist, because those are the types that I just like gravitate towards. Um, like almost all of my friends here in Bellingham, Washington, do some work related to the environment or climate or climate education. And I have this weird career in marketing that just happened. Um, but <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's like, I, I used to think these two things were separate, right? Like writing about the self and the family and multi-generational trauma and all these questions that we've sort of started to touch on. And then the reading and writing this, this interest that I have in wildlife, human wildlife interactions, human animal studies, um, and ecology and ecological themes. Uh, but I think in this book, what I'm starting to do is both acknowledge and allow for the natural integration of those two things. So humans don't exist outside of nature. We're part of nature We're we are animals, right? So I try to like center that in almost all of my work. And I also think that the idea of this divide between culture and nature is part of what got us in the ecological and environmental crisis that we're in now. And there's like, like not to parse words, it is a crisis, right? And in so much so that I'm, I wonder like what will happen to us? What will happen to our earth? What will happen to humans? Like, um, it's just like a very strange and sort of scary time to be alive. I don't know if you all feel this way too. Oh yeah. I, oh yeah. Yep, yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I feel like, um, I've done a lot of things like related to like mental health, like counseling and stuff because of these worries, you know? Um, so it's, it's also like a very much a part of my life. Like I, I've been fortunate to live in these places that are like in more remote locations or less populated locations, um, or like adjacent to national parks. Um, but all, even like when I was living in Milwaukee, there was always this presence of nature there. Like you can find the natural world anywhere. Like the built world intersects with the non-built world in all these ways. It's like, uh, so I'm just trying to like in my poems, acknowledge that and account for it. And like setting and landscape plays such an important role in my work. Cause what happens, like the tone of what I'm writing about, the events that I'm writing around, like they're enmeshed with where I was or what the environment is, right? Like environment, topic, tone, mood, these things are like very hard to pull apart and I wouldn't want to pull them apart. Um, and I, and I also, am just like trying to allow for the different selves, like the different parts of me, the different interests that I have to like, not be so separate. Right. So I, I, I am on the Wolf Advisory Group for the state of Washington. So it's a citizen stakeholder group. And so, um, and it's, it's volunteer based. So different cit citizens of um, the state of Washington can apply and join the group 
and we represent loosely like different stakeholder groups. So like I identify with the like environmental and outdoor recreationalist community on the wolf advisory group. And there are other people who are more in the like hunting, like represent the hunting community or might be a part of the like livestock producers community. And so we come together uh, every few months, I'd say every mm, two or three months and get together for a day or two and talk about different issues related to how wolves are managed in the state of Washington to give specific policy recommendations to the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. And I was interested in this, like, I'm not a wolf biologist. I've only recently (laughs) seen wolves in my life and that was in Yellowstone. Um, But I was interested in this because when I first moved to Washington, I was in this tiny town called Marble Mount. And around the time that I moved there, there, um, there were two wolves who were spotted in the area. And it was like the first time, I think in almost a hundred years that wolves had been in that particular area, I think like that far North and West in the state of Washington. So I was like, really, and this was like a mile or two from where I lived, where they were spotted. And so they were designated, um, as a pack, because it just takes a mating pair to be designated as a pack. And I think those wolves have since um, dispersed. Um, but that that piqued my interest in wolves and in wolves in the area. And I, I'm interested in how, not, not just wolves, but how any non-human beings sort of like respond to the conditions that we've forced, we of humans have like forced them into. And I'm very interested in the ways in which humans and non-human beings like clash or interact or like make space for each other. Um, And wolves were just like one example of that. So I was like researching this pack and I um, found when I was Googling the wolf advisory group and saw that they were looking for um, new members. So I I had been sort of like post-Trump's election, I've been trying to figure out like, okay, where can I like contribute, especially locally? Um, where, where, what can I do that could help in some way, like contribute to some cause that I care about in a way that um, draws on my skills, right? And this was what I was fortunate enough to be um, invited to be a part of. So I, I think I've written a lot of poems about wolves, and I've written a lot of poems about that don't have like have nothing to do with me or my family and have more to do with wildlife, with animals, with the non-human world, non-human beings. And I want to like bring that stuff more to the surface. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you. Yeah, that's, that is amazing. We had a little, um, a nest of, we had like thinking about the bird, uh, built environment. Um, we had this little ledge in the, our front porch and last spring we were just sitting out there and there were these two birds that just started building a nest like up in this little cranny that hadn't existed before and um yeah it was we got to watch them uh they laid like six eggs I think and then uh flew up and it's still I'm very curious because we left the nest there and I don't know what's going to happen this spring but 
Um, anyway, it, it is, it is remarkable. The, the resilience and the adaptation that, um, species have to <laughs> the total, um, just wild destruction and like, uh, random shit that we're, uh, just putting out there. Um, and yeah. Um, yeah, I guess thinking this is kind of like a broader question. Um, but I was wondering, you know, it's, it's, a one, one other thing that I was kind of tracking in this book, um, and, and the, the title of the whole collection, the necessity of wildfire, um, is, is cluing me into that. Um, there's also, there's a few parts, um, including in buttercream of the kind of, um, like my blood burns or blood burning. Um, and then there's, there's obviously also the actual wildfires, um, that are talked about in a few poems. Um, and yeah, it was, and then, yeah, thinking about the kind of the climate crisis and, and how there's, um, I mean, I think on the West coast, there's probably, there's like not a wildfire season anymore. It's just kind of like extended so long that it's just year round. Um, and, um, yet as you, as you mentioned in, in one of the poems, like sort of controlled burns or controlled wildfires are kind of, um, and, uh, like a necessary or a, a helpful way of, of preventing the, the sort of uncontrollable, um, wildfires in it. To me, it speaks to this idea of, you know, rather than this firm separation, you know, it's, it's about being in kind of right relation or, you know, uh, kind of interacting <laughs> properly in a way, um, but not in a proper like Victorian sense or something. Um, and, but yeah, I was just, I was very, yeah, I was, I was kind of curious how, um, it also seemed like the climate crisis was sort of just like always under the surface of the book. It, it never, um, at least I don't think you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's never kind of like stated explicitly, although a lot of, of course the wildfires it's, and, and, um, you know, a contemporary audience, especially, <laughs> uh, people who are thinking about it are going to be, um, reading into that because it's sort of increasingly just the lens through everything is, I think. Um, but I was curious, like how you, I guess my two main questions, which is another, and I'll, this will be my, well, I'll attempt, this will be my last, uh, long ramble in which I fit seven questions into it, but the, the wildfire and the burning was another, I'm fascinated by that connection and tension and relationship. And then I'm also just curious how you are thinking about the climate crisis in your writing, both in this collection and generally. Yeah. So the title, the necessity of wildfire is hopefully functioning on multiple levels. And uh, you mentioned controlled burns. So let me give a disclaimer first. I am not a uh, 
person who fights fire or an expert on fire and fire ecology. It's just something that interests me. So a lot of this is just like things that I learn, like self-guided learning. Um, but when I'm thinking about the necessity of wildfire, like controlled burns, I think are a way to fight fire. Um, but also, and I think we forget this is like wildfire is natural and plays a really important role in ecosystems, right? What's happened is because of various things that we've done, including like deforestation, things like that, um, drought due to climate change, right? Wildfires are not necessarily functioning in the way they would have or used to function, you know, it's like more getting out of control. Um, so that's, that's part of what I was trying to capture. Um, but also thinking about wildfire or fire purely on a metaphorical level. So what, what does a wildfire symbolize or what does that look like or mean? It's, it's like complete destruction, right? Like total burning of um, the self or what is known or one story previously. Um, but then the necessity is like sort of like what it makes space for or the regeneration that comes from it, which is in nature, like the purpose of wildfire, right? Um, and as far as like the presence of like the climate crisis in these poems, I, I thought of one line in particular, um, I think it's in the penultimate, no, it's not, it's one of the last poems. It's called Bald Eagle on Blue Stones. There's, this is like the only time that I like acknowledged the pandemic directly. And I don't even know that it's directly. It's like, um, it is dawn, the nation trawls its sicknesses. Everything as we know it has to end. I'm tired of living and then line break in my head. So like these things, the climate crisis, um, like, the like growing normalization of white supremacy in our country, uh, the pandemic, uh, all of it, it just, uh, I feel like it's, it's shaping our reality and inescapable, inescapable and like hovering over all of us in these ways that make it hard to live, honestly. And, um, so they are like, yeah, I feel like it hovers over the poems, but it's, those are not the topics that I took on directly. Um, and I think there are many reasons for that. I'm not gonna like, like defend those reasons, but I will say that the stuff that I've been writing, like I've, I've taken a turn. I would, I sort of think of it as like the ecological turn in my writing. And so I'm, I'm actually less interested these days in writing about my own experiences, my childhood, my family. I'm much more interested in writing about issues related to the climate and environment and ecology and different species. And um, yeah, like, so thinking of the project that Megan Perr and I did, we, we had this exhibit in Bear Gallery in Fairbanks, Alaska. I think that exhibit was in May, 2020 think. Um, and uh, so what we, what she is a, a wildlife biologist and a very, very talented artist and a very dear friend. Um, and wow. we, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, we 
actually we met, this is a crazy story. So I, (laughs) I didn't know her when I lived in Fairbanks and I had left and lived in Wisconsin and then moved to Washington. And she contacted me when I was living in Washington. I think that was 2017 or 2018. She contacted me through my website because she'd read some of my poems in fourth river. And so we didn't know each other. Um, and she asked if I wanted to collaborate with her, um, on a show, like for a diff- an earlier exhibit that we did, that was her poems paired with my artwork. And at first I was like, what is, what is this? You know, who is this person? <laughs> And I like looked her up and looked up her work and there was just like, she's so amazing. And um, there's so, like a similar, we have similar aesthetics, I'd say, and similar interests um, creatively. And it was a good fit. So we collaborated on that first show, um, which was actually called Tending Fire. <laughs> um, and we collaborated on that first show for months. It might've even been almost a year and we did it all virtually. So like she would like have a sketch and I would like write a poem from the sketch and then she'd finish the piece. So it was sort of like a call and response that we did. And then we, I flew to Fairbanks for the show and we met the day before the show and um, have wow. been friends and collaborators ever since. And then we did the second show, which was she was doing soundscape ecology work related to the porcupine caribou herd in Alaska. And so she wanted to do something that related to the herd. And I am like very fascinated by caribou in Alaska. And so what we did is we did a show that stories a year in the herd and their migration. And so I think it was like maybe 12 to 15 visual pieces, each paired with a poem and like a scientific annotation. So like in that project, each visual piece and poem pairing um, engage with a different aspect of caribou ecology. And I did a lot of research, just like learned a lot about caribou, especially, (laughs) bird. you know, so I was like, okay, this, this pairing is about the rut, right? Like the mating season. Um, And we were also like trying, there were, there were like some stakes to this show or this topic because there's this um, very like critical small area called the 1002 region on the North slope on the coast, which is like, um, where the, it's like a critical calving ground for the herd. And it's like potentially threatened, like could be opened up for drilling. Um, so we're trying to like raise awareness about that issue. Um, and also like find ways to engage the public, whatever, whatever the public means, um, whoever our various audiences are and where like find ways to engage them on more traditional science and research. So that like, I'm, I'm much more interested these days in interdisciplinary projects and collaborations. And I want to like bring that stuff to the surface, the forefront more. Do you have any, uh, upcoming projects or anything you're working on now that you'd like to to share something about? Yeah, sure. Um, Megan and I are actually working on our third collaboration. We're part of this larger group. It's called um, In a Time of Change. It's, man, I should explain this well, In a Time of Change, that where it's this program that brings together uh, artists across disciplines. So artists and writers, educators, and scientists and researchers. And so we come together around a specific ecological theme. And this year's theme is boreal forest, like Northern forest. And we meet right now we're meeting virtually because of pandemic. So we meet um, a few times a month and just like learn from 
researchers like different aspects of boreal forest ecology and then we like have all these opportunities to meet and like cross pollinate and this this year of meeting and working and thinking and collaborating will culminate in a show also at bear gallery i think that's going to be in the fall of 2022 um and so megan and i are collaborating on a smaller like set of a few pieces paired with um so what we're collaborating on right now uh relates to this specific wolf so we we had the opportunity to meet with one of the wolf biologists in Denali National Park. We met with her virtually. Her name is Bridget Borg, and she was awesome and really helpful. And we were just like, wanted to know what, what, what was some of the research, some of the things they were doing related to wolves in the park, packs in the park. And um, we also asked her like, is, are there any specific wolves or instances or stories that like stand out to you? And she told us about this wolf known as, um, wolf 1202 i think it's this uh, matriarch wolf of i think the riley creek pack and the riley creek campground is near the front of the park so it's actually like um a pretty uh that that pack is more like seen by people driving on the road and the road outside of the park and the road in the park and seen by tourists who go in um so it has more notoriety and this wolf specifically was collared and she lived to be, I think, 11 years old, which is like quite old for a wolf. Um, so they knew a lot about her life. Like she was, was like documented and um, Bridget had encountered this wolf. I think she had collared this wolf. Um, and so we just like heard some of the stories about this wolf's life, right? Like what happened to her? Um, there's like a lot of violence, right? Like there's a lot of um, violence that occurs in nature and among wolves, you know, like wolves are not the only thing I'm interested in. And I'm a little bit like cautious of like promoting wolves. Cause it's like, we have this fascination with like, um, charismatic megafauna. Right. But there's like, like what's, what's going on with salmon. There's like just as interesting, if not more so. Right. Um, but this wolf in particular, we decided we want to like focus in on 1202. And so what we're doing is like Megan is sketching like black and white detailed sketches that sort of like get a different snapshots of her life. It's like this relates to like her mate's death. This relates to like her death or like this scene with her and her cubs. I mean, her pups, sorry, not cubs. And um, I'm going to write like in response to those. What, and I'm thinking maybe less, maybe not writing poems, but maybe writing like lyrical vignettes. And I'm not sure like how um, direct or like representational or like, I'm not sure what, what the tone is going to be or like how poetic they're going to be, but I am like reading about the wolf's life and also reading more broadly about, um, wolf ecology, especially in that area and thinking about the boreal forest in that area and, um, interior Alaska, like the landscape and history of interior Alaska. So there's a, like a lot there and, um, yeah, that's what I'm working on currently. That sounds incredible. I already want to like write a song about this wolf. I don't <laughs> even know what her life was about, <laughs> but I feel like there's, yeah, that's amazing. Um, fantastic. I mean, I have like a million other questions, but I think it's probably time to read the poem again. Sure. Buttercream. I cut open an avocado only to find it dappled with rot. I eat it anyway. Because my blood burns, I decide not to have children. My father's father was full of copper, his son a liver textured with scarring. 
I ate it anyway. I asked for guidance, not a leash and a collar. I turn my belly inside out. It's dappled with eggs the color of buttercream. My hens don't know which are fertilized and which aren't. My mother lost her wedding ring in vegetable garden dirt. I dig out the rot. I say I decided not to have children, but no man ever asked me and meant it. If each parent gives you a defective gene, you can bake a cake or crawl across the floor between buckets of your blood. I dig, but never find the ring. Some hens sit on eggs until they rot. Some men take hammers to their wives. My lover yawns. Of all the stories I could tell, I've learned of all the stories you could tell. Her blood burned. My mother made a red velvet cake with buttercream frosting. She ate the whole thing. She never told anyone who believed her. He might have been sick his whole broken bowl of a life. I might find a golden ring around my iris. I might not be a creature versed in dirt. Anger, like memory, takes away as much as it provides. Some hens leave their eggs where they land. Either way, we follow, we gather, we eat them. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for coming on Close Talking and sharing about this work and all of your other work and everything else you've got going on. This has been really a fantastic conversation. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Wonderful. Very quickly before uh, we let you go, at the end of episodes, Connor and I usually offer a, a quick recommendation of something we've been reading or watching or listening to that we think our listeners might enjoy. Do you have any uh, recommendations about wolves or caribou or non-charismatic megafauna or anything that you've been <laughs> reading, watching, or listening to lately? Um, I'm going to give two answers. Um, the first is I've been reading slowly this book and I cannot remember the author, um, but it's a book called Fathoms and it's about whales. And I think the author is this poet based in Australia and it's, it, it's lyrical, it's beautiful. And it has to do with, um, I think the history of what we've done to whales, um, which is like pretty depressing. Um, you have unknowingly struck on like three of my main obsessions, <laughs> <laughs> which is whales and poetry. And since the beginning of the spring last year, Australia. Oh, great. Well, you should <laughs> definitely check out this book. It's one of the most beautiful and like sort of heart wrenching things I've read in a long time. Um, mm -hmm. And the other thing that I want to make a plug for is I've been sort of revisiting um, some of Kim Tallbear's work. I don't know if you're familiar with Kim Tallbear, but um, there's an interview with her on an episode, I think back from 2019 of the all my relations podcast, it's episode five and it's called decolonizing sex. And so I just want to make a plug for Tim Colbert, decolonizing sex on all my relations podcast. Wonderful. Amazing. I'm definitely going to check both of those out. I cannot wait to read this, uh, Adams, someone. <laughs> I, I, I very quickly googled it it looks like it's fathoms the world in the whale by rebecca giggs great i do have one recommendation which is the necessity of wildfire yes um which we haven't said enough april 2022 this year april 5th 2022 is its official date although i already have my copy so i don't know where it is it might be some places it might like be available at awp this year um but you can pre-order it through the blair publishing website excellent thank you so much this has been really wonderful yeah thank you caitlin yeah.
thank you both. This is a lot of, a lot, this was seriously a lot of fun. I was like pretty nervous, but <laughs> it's like, let it flow. It'll be fine. <laughs> Absolutely. No, yeah. we, we, we keep it loose here. Well, I hope we're in touch again. That sounds Absolutely. good. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Definitely. Have a good night. All right. Cheers. You too. Connor <laughs> what do you got okay so so Caitlin knocked it out of the park by hitting on Wales and Australia and uh basically making my reading list complete for the next I don't know how long <laughs> so what do you got <laughs> I'm never um, gonna watch station 11 at this point this is just gonna be like <laughs> it's never gonna happen I'm not gonna have the time what, um, what do you got yeah well no I mean I that I cannot cannot top those recommendations um i will say i did today i just listened to and shout out to um uh my brother dylan for recommending it but d strat d strat um big thief the band big thief uh has a new album that recently came out it's called dragon new warm mountain i believe in you that's the entire name of the album and there is a song that is called dragon new warm mountain i believe in you um but it's really good they are a great band uh and this is like quite a sprawling album it's it's like an hour 20 minutes they got they you know they're kind of like indie rock but they this one has some bluegrassy songs, some more country songs, some more, I don't know, um, some some funny songs. Um, and I highly recommend it. I think my current favorite is Change, which is the first track. Yeah, they're just they're very good. I listened to it basically the entire day. So they're an interesting band. I've only listened to a couple of songs from that album so far, but I did notice that they seemed to be promoting new work. Um, yeah, they're good. I like them. They got a good vibe. Very good vibe. Um, Jack. Yes. What? would you recommend this time around anything you listening to reading watching well i'd been planning to watch this for a while and finally got around to it the nicholas cage vehicle pig oh so you got uh, to pig before station 11 is that that's kind of where you're at right now yeah no i mean i feel like you could you could adequately and accurately make that uh connection it's true. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> it's fair because it's accurate. And uh, yeah, it's, it's good. I like it. <laughs> it's pretty sad. And oh. it's a little on the nose at times about the, the point it's making. Okay. But the overall message, which I believe is shown in the trailer where at one point Nicolas Cage says something like you only have so many things in life to really care about um 
is a good one. And I, I do kind of like how the film approaches that question. Hmm. Uh, it does it in sort of extremes, but I, I like it. Uh, and it ends, spoilers, I guess, with a Bruce Springsteen moment. Ooh! Wasn't even expecting it. And I was like, oh, hey, look at that. For any um, new listeners, Jack <laughs> loves Bruce Springsteen. Ah, oh, man. Bruce Springsteen was playing songs about whales in Australia. Whew. Yeah, that, that was the only thing missing, I think, uh, was the We don't boss. know that he's not quoted in this book. We don't know that. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed Pig. Nicolas Cage is doing a lot of good Nicolas Cage stuff. He's doing like the good version of that thing he does. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You never but know. You, you never quite know with him. I mean, he's kind of always doing whatever he does. Um, yeah. I know I've mentioned to you that I watched the recent Hollywood reporter, like actors round table where he compares acting to various mixed martial arts and talks about how he has shark energy and not pig energy. Herzog used to say to me, now Nicholas, let the pig loose. <laughs> well, that was before I made pig. That's what he was saying. Let the pig, I said, well, I'm not a pig. I'm more like a shark. What do you mean I'm a pig? Let the pig loose. You know, the bliss of evil. Whatever. But, you know, right. I appreciate that he's out there being a weird dude, doing his weird dude stuff. Yeah. Talking about how his horse is his nemesis and whatever. <laughs> like, you know what? <laughs> Good for you, man. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a pretty quiet, sad film with bursts of violence. Not like horrible, gory violence or anything. But yeah, Pig. I think it's it's quite good. I'll check it out. I can't wait. And uh, we plugged it a couple of times, but you can't plug it enough. Uh, really do recommend getting a copy of Caitlin Scarano's The Necessity of Wildfire. Um, April 5th this year. It's really, really good. Thank you, Caitlin, again for taking the time to talk with us. Yes, much appreciated. And everybody out there, go get your copy. Don't buy it from Amazon. Oh, yeah. Don't get it from Amazon. Get it from the Blair website or you know, a more reputable seller <laughs> that won't use your money to go to space for no Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossner Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time. <laughs>